Well, in 2018, a new technology emerged on the scene. Uh, this technology, you may have heard of it, uh, started as a hobby, but it now poses a threat to the very nature of truth in our society. A person using this technology has the ability to create confusion, to spread false information, to tarnish reputations, and even start wars if we're not careful. This technology has a name, the deep fake. If this is a term that's new to you, deep fakes use a form of artificial intelligence called deep learning, hence the name deep fake, uh, to make images of, or videos of fake events. Uh, all you need is a picture uh, of somebody's face that can be changed or manufactured into a new image or even a video. In fact, if you Google deep fake examples, you'll find videos of people like Amy Adams here, that, that's Nicolas Cage's face on her on the side there, um, uh, Morgan Freeman, Mark Zuckerberg, Barack Obama, all saying unflattering things. Uh, the AI system learns what a particular face looks like and then it can transfer the facial movements of an actor onto that, that picture target. And this might make you feel a little unsettled, and it probably should. <laughs> All somebody would need is a picture of you to create a fake video of you saying whatever they want. It, it can even mimic your voice. Actors and politicians and celebrities, a lot of them have fallen prey to the deep fake. There's even websites where you can go and create your own deep fake. Now, while some people have used this technology to create educational videos, nefarious uses abound. In fact, most technology companies, some of you might even work for them, are creating right now with urgency software to detect deep fakes. But despite their best efforts, this tech changes so rapidly, it's hard to combat. In fact, in fact, one researcher put it this way. He said, whatever we do, people who create those manipulations, they're going to come up with something else. And then he said, I don't know if there will ever be a time where we will be able to detect every kind of manipulation. Let me say that again. We will never be able to detect every kind of manipulation, which is pretty scary for a technology that started five years ago as a hobby. So let me summarize. This modern technology can create a video of anyone saying anything. We all need to watch out for the deep fake. But more than that, this tech actually points to the possibility of something else we have to watch out for, and that is the spiritual deep fake in our lives. Now, last week, we began a series called SWAT, Spiritual Warfare and Tactics, and we said for six weeks, we're going to examine in detail the nature of the spiritual battle we face. And we spent much of our first week discussing our enemy, Satan, the father of lies, the prince of the power of the air, the, the Bible tells us, the accuser. Given what we discussed last week, let me make a statement. Satan is the originator and master of the spiritual deep fake. Satan is the originator and master of the spiritual deep fake. His schemes, which we discussed, have pervaded the church and the world. In fact, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul warns about false teachers, and look at the language he uses to describe Satan. He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Wow. Now notice that word disguise. It's used both of the false teachers and of Satan. When somebody disguises themselves, it means they change. They're trying to conceal their true identity. For what purpose? For deceit and manipulation. But notice something else. Satan makes himself look not like, like awful. He makes himself look like an angel of light. He wants to appear virtuous. And that is the spiritual deep fake 
that we have to discern even within the church. The great reformer Martin Luther said it plainly. He said, for where God has built a church, there the devil also built a chapel. Thus is the devil even God's imitator. I'll say that again. The devil seeks to be God's imitator. He's trying to pull a deep fake on us. Now, the goals of the devil are not the same as God. He wants to destroy us. He wants to make us ineffective for the kingdom. He wants to discourage us to a point in our lives where it might even be destructive. So where is Satan trying to deep fake you? Now, if you're a science person, you know that the science behind this technology of the deep fake is called deep machine learning. In other words, the artificial intelligence used in deep fakes is always learning. It's improving its methods. And Satan does the same thing. He knows just how to attack you and just how to attack me. He knows our proclivities. In his book, Fighting Satan, author and pastor Joel Beakey notes four ways that Satan uses the spiritual deep fake on us. First, he says, Satan entices us to sin. He makes it look so good, but the truth is it'll ruin our lives. Second, Satan hinders our spiritual discipline. Satan would love nothing more than for you to stop praying and to stop reading God's word. Then you're you're disconnected from the power source. Third, Satan will misrepresent God and his truth. Friends, Satan wants to turn you against God. He wants you to believe that God is a liar. That was the original tactic in the garden. And then fourth, Satan opposes our sanctification. In other words, he will do everything he can to keep you from becoming like Jesus. He will fight and he will claw to keep you from growing in your faith. Just like those deep fake programmers, he will change his methods so often that they're difficult to detect. Where are you falling prey to Satan's deep fake in your life? Friends, the Christian life is one big deep fake battleground, battlefield against Satan. Last week, I encouraged us to prepare for battle, which required two things. Number one, you have to recognize that there is a war. And then number two, you need skill in combat. Now, hopefully you recognize that there is a a spiritual war going on, but for the rest of the series, we're going to focus on this, this idea of skill in combat. And our skill is developed on the battlefield. And so today I want to show you two battlefields in our lives and the defensive weapons in our arsenal. So first, there's the battlefield of the mind. Second, there's the battlefield of the heart. And then finally, there's the gospel turn. Because once we make the turn, we can more readily recognize the spiritual deep fakes that are coming at us. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive into each one of those today. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, I pray for my friends today who are here, who are watching at home, who are listening to this later on, Lord God. I pray that you would come and meet us where we are. Lord, Lord, we we confess that we we, we fall prey to these, these spiritual deep fakes in our lives. Give us your wisdom. Give us your discernment to know where they are. Help us to develop our skill in combat in this spiritual war today. Holy Spirit, come and transform us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so first, let's talk about the battlefield of the mind. Now, in week one of our series, we learned, again, that there is a spiritual battle, not against flesh and blood, but against these unseen spiritual forces. Picture them, to use the analogy, as evil computer programmers, sorry, computer programmers, of the spiritual war world. They are the ones working behind the scenes on these spiritual deep fakes. They are trying to imitate God in a way that will deceive us. So how does, what does Paul tell us to do? Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God. 
That's the whole series. Put on the whole armor of God. Now, since I didn't have time last week, let me give a brief overview of each piece of the armor. There's six. There's six. First, there's the belt of truth. We got into that last week. I'm going to spend some time again on it this week. Second, there's the breastplate of righteousness. And I'm going to spend a large portion of the message today on that piece. Third, the boots of peace. That's next week. Uh, These are the shoes of somebody ready to share the gospel. Uh, Fourth, there's the shield of faith, our defensive weapon against the lies of the devil. Fifth, the helmet of salvation protects our minds and it reminds us of our salvation in Christ. And then sixth, the sword of the spirit, our offensive weapon, the word of God, which is living and active in our lives. And then finally, as we use these weapons, Paul tells us to pray continually, relying on the Holy Spirit. Paul says, put on this armor every day. And then in verse 13, he actually shifts his language. Look at what he says. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. So don't just put on the armor of God and then look in the mirror and say, man, that armor looks good on me. I'm rocking that armor. (laughs) No, no, the phrase take up means we got to use the armor in battle. We got to stand together in this battle against Satan and the deep fake spiritual programmers. And that brings us to the first battlefield, the battlefield of the mind, the battlefield of the mind. And that's where the first weapon comes in. So he says in verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on this belt of truth. Now truth begins in the mind. It begins with our fundamental understanding of reality in this world. The Greek word for truth is aletheia, and it has two senses. First, the objective truth of the gospel and Christian doctrine. Okay, that's the objective truth. But then secondly, there is a subjective sense about us living honestly and with moral integrity. And what Satan does is he attacks both. He wants you to believe the gospel is untrue, and then he wants us to believe that moral integrity doesn't matter. He comes at us from both angles. And he, both of those attacks begin in the mind. Or, or he makes us believe the mind doesn't matter. And this is why we need the belt of truth. Now, this shows a divide in our way of thinking because in the modern era, if you look back at history, which began in the Enlightenment and continued until the mid-1900s, the mind, people knew the mind mattered, right? People knew how to use logic, how to think critically and correctly. People were more likely to assess truth based on objective facts. But since the 1960s, we are living in a postmodern era where feelings and emotions are paramount. So people now assess reality based on how it makes them feel, not not always logically. We no longer have the truth. We got my truth. Everybody's got it. In our minds, everybody has their own truth. That's a common vernacular today. Now, do you see how that might cause some confusion? In fact, I think it's Satan's greatest weapon, his greatest device against us. It's confusion and chaos. Satan uses this to make us ineffective for the kingdom of God. It's his greatest deep fake in this postmodern era. If you don't know what's true, how can you agree upon anything? Joel Beakey, again, makes an astute observation. He says, Satan is a master at suggesting that we believe what we want to believe rather than believe the truth. Now think for a moment about how that plays out in your life and other people's lives. We want to, what we want to believe is true may not actually be true. Friends, the battlefield of the mind is a battle of ideas. It's a battle of worldview. What ideas are you believing right now that have consequences in your life? 
And Satan works this strategy at two different levels. First, he sows individual chaos and confusion. In other words, confusion happens at a personal level. So how has your individual life felt confusing and chaotic? I mean, often this takes, uh, takes us to a conversation about identity. Who am I? Where is God calling me? And our society is obsessed with identity markers. Has that caused unity or division, chaos or confusion? In Ephesians chapter 1, before Paul gets to this warfare section in chapter 6, he speaks to individuals about their identity. What does he say? He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Notice the phrase, in Christ. That's a major theme in Ephesians. It's a doctrine that theologians call union with Christ. And it's hugely important for the Christian life and warfare. Because if you're a Christian, if you've surrendered your life to him, your life is now hidden with Christ. People don't see you, they see him. You're under his protection. And Satan's greatest desire is to make you forget the blessings and inheritance you have in Christ. So he attacks our minds by sowing doubt about our identity. And this happens often through what Paul Tripp calls the danger of self-talk. How does Satan sow chaos and confusion? In the mirror. Because, friends, nobody talks to you and nobody talks to me more than you. Right now or later on, you're going to get before a mirror and you're going to start having multiple conversations with yourself. Not in a crazy way, but you talk to yourself in your head. How dare that person speak to me that way? Oh, that's right. Uh, I deserve that raise. Uh, she, she doesn't know what she's talking about. He's so arrogant. We, have, we engage in this self-talk. We're constantly trying to convince ourselves in our minds of what is true. Where are you engaging in self-talk? When you look in the mirror, what are you saying to yourself? And is Satan using you against you? Beware. Because what Satan wants to do is he wants to get you alone. He wants you listening to yourself in order to sow confusion and chaos in your life. So that's the individual. But it doesn't stop there. He also sows collective confusion and chaos. Because if you can confuse the mind and conscience of an individual, eventually it starts to spread out to society like a virus. So ask yourself, where is our world confused right now? And where did that start? with individuals who then came together. In Ephesians 4, Paul now speaks to the collective church. And what does he say? He says, put on the new self. He's talking to the church. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak, uh, let each one of you speak the truth with his who? With his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Put on the new self. So you can, you can speak truth to each other only in a collective community. And this is what we miss in warfare. It's a group effort. The church is called to stand together. The Christian life is not meant to be done alone. We need other Christians to counsel us toward the truth. Satan's greatest strategy, again, is to get us alone and talking to ourselves. He wants to infect our minds so we can spread his message to others. But when the church stands together, we can resist. How? By focusing on God's remedy. And God's remedy is order and truth. Order and truth. In his letter to the Corinthians, second letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, in the context of orderly worship, 
Paul makes this statement. He says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God's not a God of confusion, but of peace. Did you catch that? God does not sow confusion. So if there's confusion and chaos in your life, be on the lookout for the enemy. You might be getting deep faked. He's got plenty of tactics to use against you. The Apostle Peter, first letter, what did he tell us? He said, pay attention because he's out there. He's prowling. Like the programmers attempting to find that deep fake, you will become masters. You need to become masters at spotting the devil's schemes, his methods. And you have the power to do this. Peter says this in his second letter. His divine power has granted to us, to Christians, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So church, he says, he has given you everything you need to follow Jesus and to resist the devil. Now notice he's given you knowledge. Your minds are sharp. You know the truth and you can live out the truth for his glory. Don't let the enemy deep fake you. It's a battlefield of the mind. Now, before we leave this point, I want to take you back to the book of Philippians for just a moment. Uh, we just finished going through that book, and I, I want to use Philippians 4.8 to show you how Satan can use a, a deep fake against you. Again, it's a battlefield of the mind, right? And Philippians 4.8 is all about teaching us how to think, what to think about. But, you, it, but can you spot the way Satan could attempt to confuse you? Paul writes this. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely or beautiful, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, what? Think about these things. Think about these things. Again, it's a battlefield of the mind. Now, what are you thinking about? Are you waging war in your mind? Are you constantly thinking about truth and honor and justice and purity and beauty in the way God thinks about them? Do you have the mind of Christ? That was, that was a major theme in Philippians. Now watch out for the deep fake, right? Satan will sow confusion by implanting different ideas about each of those virtues. He will seek to convince you that what is true is not true. He will seek to persuade you to a different form of honor. Justice, he will turn that on its head. Purity and beauty, you've got it all wrong. Watch out for the deep fake. Watch out. Where is he attacking your mind? It's a battlefield of the mind first, and I want you to recognize that. It begins there. It's a battle over truth, which is why we need the belt of truth, but it does not stay there. It becomes then a narrative that moves to that second battlefield, the battlefield of the heart. And this is what I want to show you today, because I really think this is how Satan, he seeks to attack us this way. He starts with truth, he seeks to confuse our minds and our thinking, and once he sows, sows seeds of intellectual doubt, then he moves to the heart, and he sows seeds of emotional doubt, and those are far, far, far more powerful. And that's why we need the next piece of the armor. Stand therefore. Having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, interestingly, this is the last time Paul uses that phrase, put on. He started using it in chapter 4, uh, where he told us to put on the new self. Now we're dressed for battle. The breastplate is covering a crucial area of the body, the heart. And if you lose the heart <laughs> in battle, you lose your life. Now, in Paul's day, a soldier's breastplate, it looked like this. It, it, was a, it was a layer of metal or tough leather that covered the soldier from neck all the way down to his navel, front 
and back. It was a key piece of defensive armor. Rob Ventura puts it this way. He says, the breastplate was a chief piece of defensive armor for a soldier because it protected his vital organs during battle, and it serves the same function for us spiritually in our battle against Satan. Now, to understand how important the breastplate was, both physically and metaphorically, you need to understand the biblical idea of the heart. Because in Paul's day, people thought the heart and the liver, ironically, were the center of affections. Which is kind of crazy to me. The liver, you think the liver has emotions? It's a filtration system in the body. Our emotions like joy and anger, they come from these organs, from your liver apparently. While the understanding may be unscientific, it is important to understand the spiritual lesson he's teaching us. Guard your heart and your liver. Guard your heart. And this brings us to our modern battlefield because today's war is fought in the heart. This is where the deep fake happens. Satan confuses our minds, he makes us doubt the truth, and then he gets us talking to ourselves, so we start to create an emotional narrative about our lives and about what's happening to us. We're trying to make sense of it. We stop thinking logically, and emotions then drive our words and our beliefs and our actions, if we're not careful. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Dating relationships. Okay, some of us, you might be dating right now, and you know it's hard. Maybe, have you ever tried online dating in your life, right? That, there's a prime example of a deep fake possibility. Did you ever go on a date with somebody who misrepresented themselves? Others of us, we've dated in the past, and I'll, I'll wager at some point in our lives, we've been in a bad dating relationship. And yet, even though we knew it was a bad dating relationship, we should have moved on, we stayed in that relationship much longer than we should have. Even though people were telling us to get out of it, we didn't want to break up. Why? Because it's emotional. Have you ever tried to break up with somebody logically? I'll send you a meeting invite with the subject, breakup conversation. <laughs> now imagine you did that, and then imagine the person accepted it and showed up, and you said, all right, let's, let's do this logically, okay? Uh, I got five reasons why we shouldn't see each other anymore. And then you start walking systematically through them, the other person listens, and then imagine the other person says, all right, that makes good logical sense. Best wishes, you shake hands and you leave. No, it never happened. No, emotions are so powerful. Most of us just opt to say, you know what? It's not you, it's me. Oh, I'm working on myself. I need some time. See, my point is we make bad decisions because our emotions capture our hearts. And Satan knows this. Spiritual warfare is not just a battle of the mind. It's a battle of the heart. Here's the truth. If we don't stop Satan's lies in our minds... By the time they get to our hearts, they are harder to dislodge. The emotional narrative is wedged in there, and it's really hard to let go. In fact, it, it feels better to keep it in. So here's the great lie that Satan tells us, and we believe it. He says it doesn't matter if it's true, it, it, if it feels good. It feels good. Now, if you were living in the modern era, historically, your key question would be, is it true? But in the postmodern era, the key question we're always asking ourselves is, will it make me happy? Happiness is the goal. It doesn't matter if it's true. Satan uses the world's messages to entice our flesh to pull us away from God. That's the goal. What device does he use? He uses his arrows. What are his arrows? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, um, in their book, The Sacred Romance, John Eldridge and Brent Curtis very famously introduced this idea that our lives are a grand story with an enemy. 
And the way this enemy, Satan, attacks us is by lodging arrows in your heart. And it's manifested in what they call sentences we live by. What are the sentences that you live by? Oh, we all have them. Uh, maybe it's uh, nobody respects me. You know, during your early years, perhaps your parents never listened to you and you started to believe that you're not worthy of respect. And so you start to live out of that. I'm going to prove that I'm worthy of respect because nobody really respects me. I'm not beautiful. No one affirmed you when you were younger. So you started to believe that you were ugly or no one, no one would ever want to be with you. If you want it done right, you got to do it yourself. Somewhere along the way, you learned that you can't trust anybody. So you've closed yourself off to everyone in a deep way because nobody can be trusted. What is your sentence? We all have them. Because somewhere along the way, somebody spoke to us and their words placed a thought in our minds and it made its way into our hearts. And without the breastplate of righteousness, we were unprotected and our heart was wounded. And if the devil's attacks reach that core of our being, our hearts, he can influence us to live with guilt and with fear and with anxiety and with depression and with discouragement. Is anybody living there today? What wounds are you carrying around? Because I imagine at some level, Satan has used those wounds to create confusion and chaos in your life. And you know what? He loves it. He loves it when that happens. Now, if that's you today, I want to encourage you to get up and fight back. I want to invite you to focus on the breastplate of righteousness right now. You've got to put it on because it is the protection and it's the healing that your heart needs today. Because I want to remind you that the battle has already been won. So how do we use the breastplate of righteousness? How do we use it in battle? Now, let's first discuss that word righteousness. It's not a word we use every day. It simply means upright living that aligns with God's expectations. God's standard is holiness. And the Greek word is a very important one theologically. So I want to teach it to you. It's the word dikaiosune. Dikaiosune. Paul is drawing directly from that divine warrior image in Isaiah 59, 17, where we read this. He put on righteousness as his breastplate. In Isaiah, the warrior is God himself who wears this breastplate. It's his righteousness, which he then, in Ephesians 6, gives to his people to use. He offers his righteousness to us, which provides healing for our sin-stained hearts and protection in our sin-stained world. This is the righteousness which comes from God himself. How does it work? How does the breastplate work? Well, theologians have broken it down into two categories. The first one is what they call imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. Now, the word imputed, again, you might not know what that is. It's not a common word. It's a theological word. But it simply means that God has assigned us the character of righteousness. It's a legal word. God has taken our sin debt and he's paid it in full. We were unrighteous, but God in his mercy made us righteous through the precious blood of his son on the cross. This is the work of Christ, the very gospel itself. Paul proclaims it in Romans chapter 3. He says, therefore, no, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. You can't earn your way to salvation. You can't make yourself righteous. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. That's why the law is there, to show us that we're sinners, that we can't meet God's standard. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness, the dikaiosune, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all 
who believe. The righteous, this righteousness is a gift. It's a gift from God. The divine warrior of Isaiah, the Savior King, spills his blood on the cross. That rider on the white horse who comes and fights for us, he gives us his righteousness. We don't deserve it. He gives it anyway. He imputes it to us. Martin Luther called it the great exchange on the cross. Jesus took all of our sin and he gave us all of his righteousness. What grace. What grace. Now, church, you got to see how that's important for spiritual warfare. In the scriptures... Satan is not just described as the father of lies, he is also portrayed as the accuser. In Revelation 12, John describes a war in heaven. Satan and all his followers were cast out, and then John hears this voice from heaven, and what does the voice say? For the accuser of the brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. Satan is an accuser, and that's why he tempts you to sin, because he wants to say, see, 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 you're no good. You're no good. You're a hypocrite. You're you're not righteous. And that's why we need the breastplate. It reminds us that we are righteous, not because of our work, but because of Jesus' work. And if Satan comes to accuse you, you can respond with Ephesians 1.3, I'm in Christ. And because I have union with Christ, Romans 8.1 tells me there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The devil is your accuser. Jesus is your advocate. That's the truth. Are you facing accusations right now? I suspect you are. You need the breastplate of righteousness. You need to wear it every day. You need to cling to the gospel. You need to cling to the cross. But there's more. There's imputed righteousness, but there's also what they call imparted righteousness. So we're objectively righteous before God because of Jesus' work. He imparts, but then he imparts his righteousness so that we can engage in righteous living through the power of the Holy Spirit. This, this is all about our holiness, and it's very important. Our works don't save us. Rather, our works display our salvation. All of us are sinners in need of a Savior, but we're also saints who wage war against Satan. Our holiness shows that we love God and we will not be lured into sin. Because when you give in to sin, that leaves room for the devil to accuse. So don't do it. Don't do it. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 4. He says, therefore, each of you must what? Must put off. Don't put on. Put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Because why? Because then you're going to give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. Don't let Satan steal. Where? the breastplate of righteousness. Don't let the devil deep fake your mind and definitely don't let the devil deep fake your heart. Fight back by living out your righteousness in Christ. You got to fight sin. Don't give the devil a foothold. Don't let him steal anymore. In his book, Fighting Satan, Joel Beakey again offers this illustration that shows the power of imparted righteousness. So he says, don't flirt with sin. And then he gives an illustration. He says, consider a man who lived on top of a mountain. So just picture, you're living, (laughs) this is where your house is, (laughs) right here on the top of the mountain. And what he needed to do was he he needed to hire somebody to take his daughter down the mountain on this narrow mountain road to to school every day. So he he needed to interview candidates. And what he did was um, he brought them in and he, he asked them a question. He said, how close can you come to the edge without going over? And the first man he interviewed said, well, I can come within 12 inches and not go over the edge. He said, all right. Well, a second guy comes and says, I can come within six inches and not go over the edge. 
All right, sweating a little bit. The third guy comes and says, I can come within an inch without falling over. All right. Well, then a fourth guy comes and says, the closer I come to the edge, the more I'm hugging the other side. So I choose to stay as far away from the edge as I possibly can. And you know who got the job. Don't ask, how far can I go? Ask, how close can I stay to Jesus? Then when the devil shoots his arrows, you can brandish your righteousness, which comes from Christ. Don't give him a foothold. The battlefield of the heart is fought with the breastplate of righteousness. Satan will seek to use his spiritual deep fake on the battlefield of the mind and the battlefield of the heart. And as we master our skill with the belt of truth and with the breastplate of righteousness, we can thwart his efforts and then advance his kingdom. Now the question is, how do we practically do that? How do we spot all these spiritual deep fakes in our lives? Well, to use the computer analogy, we need a better algorithm. We have to make the gospel turn. And this final point is just all about application. I want to kind of walk you through this for a few minutes here at the end. I want to give you a biblical case study that's still happening today. Now, to give credit where credit's due, I've been, I've been going through this biblical counseling training course this summer, and I learned this process from a guy named Jason Kovacs and his group, the Gospel Care Collective. So I'm going to give credit there. But I was struck by how relevant it is to this section of warfare. So let me take you back to the beginning. Genesis 3, 1 to 15 was the original deep fake. And even if you haven't read the Bible very much, you know it's this very famous passage where Satan, as the serpent, tempts Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. And then sin enters the world and the rest is history. But I want you to notice a couple things. First, Satan tempts Eve's mind by calling into question God's goodness. And then, I think, he tempts Adam's heart by leveraging his relationship with Eve against him. Even in the beginning, it's a battle for minds and hearts. But then finally, as sin comes into the world, it brings the need for a savior and the gospel. And when we wear the breastplate of righteousness, it calls us to remember and lean into the gospel every day. So I want to give you an exercise uh, to do this week so you got a little bit of homework. Um, if, if you did not pick up the outline that we email out on Saturday, uh, go back and print it off because I actually have the exercise on there. You can go and see it. And I, and I want you to do this. I want you to, I want you to walk through these questions each day. It revolves around three questions on each side, the three questions that God asks Adam and Eve when he finds them after they sin. The three questions provide a framework for leaning into the breastplate of righteousness. So each day in your prayer time, start with this question from Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Where are you? Now, now, this is the question God asks Adam and Eve. And maybe it struck you at some point that this is a bit of a silly question, right? Of course God knows where they are. But I think he's actually asking them to reflect on a much deeper question. Where are you mentally, emotionally, spiritually? Or put another way, right now, what are you feeling what are you thinking? What are you desiring? And I want you to picture right now that God is calling to you, and he's asking you right now, where are you? He's asking you those questions. And I want, you, I want to give you a moment to silently reflect on that question. I'm going to do it for each one of these. So where are you? Where are you? Just take a moment.
So Adam responds to God's question by telling him that he knew he was naked and he was afraid. But then God asked him a second question. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Who told you? That's the second question God asked. Now again, God, God knows exactly what happened. God doesn't need information here. He is inviting Adam and Eve and us to reflect. The question for us is this, whose voice are you listening to? Whose voice are you listening to? God's inviting Adam and even us to recognize the voice that's influencing us. Because every day we hear many voices on this battlefield of the mind and the heart. And it's important that we discern the voice calling to us. Is it Satan? Is it ourself? Is it society or the world? Is it the spirit? So take another moment just to reflect on the voices that you're listening to. Who told you? Who told you that thing you're believing? So after God asked this question, Adam and Eve engage in blame shifting. Eve bl Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. And then God asks a really pointed question to Eve. You may remember he says to the woman, what is this you've done? In other words, what did you do? And in this moment, God is calling them to confess their sin and place their trust back in him. And this is the opportunity that God offers to us every single day. But we often don't want to do it because we don't want to admit that we're sinners. But Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, going earlier in Ephesians, that we have to bring the darkness into the light to expose sin's wickedness. That's a critical piece of the healing process. It's a critical part of spiritual warfare because it then takes away Satan's power. He can't accuse you when you confess. It shows him we are trusting in the cross of Christ. We are trusting in the imputed righteousness even as we do not live out our imparted righteousness. So what did you do? Behavior, thought, action, what did you do? So take a moment right now to just confess before God. So in just a moment, we're going to have the opportunity to come to the Lord's table. And the table, the reason we come to it every month is that it's, a, it's all about the gospel turn. Because we confess our sins to Christ and we run to the cross again and again and again. Jason Kovacs writes about Adam and Eve. He says this. It's, it's kind of a long quote, but it's really important. He says, in their responses to God's questions, we get a glimpse into the hearts of Adam and Eve full of shame and fear, recounting the lies they listened to, confessing their disobedience to God whom they, whom they disobeyed. And if we put ourselves in the position of Adam and Eve, it's a pretty intense, anxiety-producing scene because their sin resulted in death's enslavement of mankind. Their shame and their guilt and their sorrow are weighing heavily on them. And I suspect right now, some of us in this room right here or, or if you're listening at home, or you're listening later on, you are dealing with fear and anxiety. 
you're wrestling with guilt and sorrow over sin. Satan may be accusing you right now. He's using your words and, words and your sins to beat you down. Well, Kovacs continues. He says, just like Adam and Eve, all of us listen to lies. We all disobey God. We all run from him, trying and failing to fix the issues ourselves. But the good news is that our story doesn't have to end in separation from God, slavery to sin, or death. And some of us need to hear that today, just honestly. Some of us are letting the enemy accuse us and taking us further down, further away from the gospel into the pit, believing all these lies, further away from God. We need to make the gospel turn. We need to stop going down. We need to look up to the one who gives us hope and salvation. So Kovacs concludes, he says, Jesus came from heaven to earth and defeated death, freeing us from slavery and giving us his Holy Spirit to be with us at all times. He absorbed the full weight of all our disobedience, failures, shame. He's freely given us his righteousness. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we can stand before God justified and clean, whole and holy. Church, that's the power of the breastplate of righteousness. It's a reminder of the gospel. And if you've never before received Jesus Christ as your Savior, it is an invitation to believe on Christ's saving work for the first time. You've got to make that gospel turn. Make that gospel turn. Trust him. Let him heal you. And so as the worship team comes back on stage for one last song, I want you to think now about that belt of truth and that breastplate of righteousness. Because if you're a Christian, if you've been made right with God because of Jesus, he has given you all you need for life and godliness. How do you combat the lies of the enemy? Well, I'm going to invite you to ask three more questions. Satan is the master of the spiritual deep fake. Some of us are getting deep faked in our lives right now. But, and we can let Satan take us further down into discouragement without the gospel, or we can make that turn. We can come to Jesus. We can hear the truth. It's the gospel turn. So before we come to the table right now, I want to invite you to ask three more questions. I want you to turn your eyes up and ask, what did Je not, not what did I do, what did Jesus do? And you know what he did. You know what you did. What did Jesus do? He created you. He left his place on high and came to earth. He performed miracles. He died on the cross for you. He rose from the dead, and he now sits enthroned in heaven at the right hand of the Father. That's what Jesus did. What does Jesus say? Whose voice are you listening to? Because we've been listening to so many voices that are not him. What is Jesus saying to you through his word and his Holy Spirit? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan, the accuser, is defeated. And then where is Jesus? He's with you always. He has given you his spirit to guide you and to heal you. He's ruling in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father. And one day he's going to come back and wipe away all the tears from your eyes. He's going to defeat the enemy forever. He's going to make all things new. That's the promise of the new heavens the new, and the new earth. But until that time, we fight. Every day, the battlefield of our mind and our heart. We fight with the belt of truth, with the breastplate of righteousness. And ultimately, we know, we know, we know that the battle belongs to the Lord alone, and he calls us to trust in him, stand firm in the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us before we come to the table. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness and your grace and your mercy, Lord. Thank you for the gifts you have given to us to wage this spiritual war as we grow. Help us today not to look down, but to look up to you and know that our hope and salvation come from you. 
Thank you, Jesus, for your grace and for the gospel. We pray that in your holy name. Amen.